welcome to Directly Correct, a P-Links podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Paul Sackett, professor at University of Minnesota. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. Uh, I'm curious, is this is this is podcast worthy. Did you see the new AI regulations that came out from that executive order? No. What is it? You haven't? No. It's a big deal. Um, so uh, President Biden put out, I believe it's over a hundred page document um, and usually just for context, like an executive order is usually like a page. <laughs> it's not even like a long one. Like, and they use the big swoopy signatures at the bottom, but it's over a hundred page document on guidelines for how to use AI. And it is tough. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it's tough. And, uh, I don't know. It's kind of like written in the way and I'm trying to be charitable about this because I think I just fundamentally disagree with it. It's written in a way where I think no matter what you do, you're out of compliance. And so then when if you know everybody is out of compliance, then it just comes down to selective. Like prosecution of people and that that <laughs> yeah. that to me just and, and so I, I could kind of see these sometimes through like cynical takes of like how can you, you know, tax big tech companies? Well, just put a regulation in place that you know they're going to, they can't abide by and then just hit them with whopping fines and then that turns into a de facto tax. De facto tax. Uh, puts them over a barrel too. Like these yeah. people don't know how to use Facebook. I'm not talking like <laughs> Facebook AI. I'm talking Facebook. They don't understand it yet writing laws about it or executive orders as it were. I wonder if he used uh, <laughs> chat GPT to write the executive order. <laughs> Maybe that, now that would be a really ironic statement. If you found out there were hallucinations in the executive order <laughs> that was written by chat GPT to govern chat GPT. Well, even like pre AI, uh, you know, we'll call it five, 10 years ago. Like you'd get these stories of like, well, the party that I dislike, whatever the other party is, they produced a 5,000 page document and we had a vote on it in two hours. Like, yeah. No how do you, how do you, I can't produce an 18 page book chapter right now. Like how do you produce this much content that quickly? I do not know. Um, I will say this. I, I'm curious. I don't have a good definition. Do you have a good definition of what constitutes AI? The, <sighs> Because it seems I mean, like it's just a catch-all phrase now. I mean, it is core, just uh, automated decision-making. I mean, and that's that's a lot of things, right? But what that's if everything. it's not even making a decision? What if it's just generating things? I mean, I think it, it, that is in a decision itself. Like, generative okay. AI is like you're making decisions on the syntax of... And this is probably where you're talking about, like where they have tech companies over a barrel. It's like, well, your algorithm produced a sentence that uh, had this sort of structure. Yeah. It had to decide on that structure. I don't know. I, I, I mean, don't know. I'm off the like, rails. Can I be facetious here for a second? And this is not a reflection on you. 
do you remember learning about like IPO framework, the input process output framework in grad school? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I just feel like anything that fits the input process output is now AI. You know, it has an output. It's therefore making a decision. You know, it's like it had some kind of calculation to come to that conclusion. Like is all software AI is every line of code that's ever been written AI. Like, I don't know. Well, what I think is fascinating is, um, say, say like, um, although, although stock, stock, uh, documents that would come out and be like, Microsoft was up 3.2% today on heavy mm -hmm. trading on the floor and like, da, 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 da. almost all of that is just automatic, autom automatically generated. On the fly, yeah. it's, like, it's like a Mad Libs. It's like a template, and they just well, they better submit their code to the government, or they're going to be shut down. <sighs> Man, it's just wild. Uh, <laughs> I got invited to a gala last night. Totally switching gears. Uh, yeah, it was it was wild. It was like fancy dinner party, as you could imagine, like sitting around, like drinking wine and eating cocktails of. People walking around, handing shit out. So a gala, does that mean there was like violins playing and everybody was in a tuxedo or what kind of gala is this? Yes. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good description. There was no one actually playing a violin or a cello in the corner, but <laughs> there definitely could have been. Yeah. I mean, they had like, you know, uh, the whole bit and like there was various levels of dress. Uh, some people in suits. I, I rocked like uh, PSYOP nice for me. You know what I mean? High up, nice for you. Full elbow pads <laughs> and all. No, no elbow pads, but uh, not not even a suit jacket. I mean, that, that's what psyop nice rises for me. Yeah, that's fine. Well, hey, Paul, it's good to, good to see you. Good morning. What, what's what's psyop like for you, Paul? I mean, like you're IO royalty. You must walk around like a king. Oh, not indeed, I do, of course. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, geez. I mean, Sion's been a big part of my life forever and ever. You know, um, it's um, it just goes back a long time. So it's great fun to watch the, the changes. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, being involved on their executive committee when we were deciding, would it make sense for us to have our own conference back in the day where, you know, it was just APA and uh -huh. we were Division 14 and they gave us, you know, 40 hours of programming time spread across five days. So you had eight hours a day. So you could have one session at, at a time uh, over, over those five days. So do you think anybody would come if we had our own meeting? And, and wow, you know, first one, you know, Chicago, we're going back this year, which is sort of fun, back to the scene of the crime. Um, and it, it's just blossomed. It's just amazing. So They say serial killers always go back to the scene of the crime. You got it. Oh uh, yeah, well, I mean, it must never get old having the graduate students fawn over you. Um, I suspect that they—I don't know if, if this happens to you, but do people quote research that you did like thirty years ago back to you, expecting you to remember all the details of what you wrote? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so they do that, but more often it's more a question about it. You know, yeah. you know. You know, on page forty-seven of your of your nineteen eighty-six paper, you you know, you said, and you know, why did you do this? And why? I, I, you know, I said that. You know, it's very strange. <laughs> it is odd. I mean, it it is a weird thing. I mean, you. I mean, I think back to as a grad student going to my first conference, which was APA. You know, and so you know, a handful of us. You know, here we're students, and we're 
and we're terrified. You know, here's all the all the big people, and you wander around. Uh, you know, you're staring at everybody's name tag. You're trying to find, you know, and recognize, and then you go, "Oh my God, that's you know, that's Gary Latham." You know, yeah. you know, Paul, go talk to him. No, Phil, you go talk to him. What am I going to say? You know. I read your paper and I liked it. I mean, I, you know, we thought we'd be really stupid. Do we dare, do we dare approach people? And um, so, yeah, so I don't know. With my students, I now sort of try, take the student in hand and, you know, a, approach you know, a, a colleague, a friend and say, hey, let me introduce my student so-and-so. And so give them that that chance to say hi and say, people are all ha always happy that other people see their stuff and that they're known and recognized. But it is sort of weird. I mean, I get this odd thing at PSYOP of, you know, oh, you know, can I take a selfie with you kind of, and I'm going, it's, <laughs> it's this peculiar. When did know, that for, start? For, for, for two days a year, you're a sort of celebrity as it were, which is, which is odd, but I, I, I just smile and say, okay, I'm glad, I'm glad it's being read. Better, better to be that than to be ignored. Uh, I, th I think we all need selfies at PSYOP this year, right? We got to all get together. <laughs> Yeah, that would be fun. Do it, it like a fun. directionally correct get together. Take a bunch of <laughs> selfies. That would be really fun. It's also reassuring to hear that like you were once a starstruck, you know, young researcher, and now you've become that star that people seek out. Oh God, no! I mean, I think back with such fond memories of going to that first conference. You know, we're students. There's no money. There's no travel support. Yeah. The conference, I'm at, I'm at Ohio State, and so we're in Ohio, and the conference is in D.C., and we decide that we're going to get in a Volkswagen van and drive there, and we don't have any money, but we find that on the interstate circling D.C., on the outskirts, there's something called the Cherry Hill Campground, so we went and pitched a tent and got up in the morning, you know, um, put on our terrible polyester suits and and drove into downtown dc and, and and went to the conference you know and you know came back in the evening and you know over our cook stove you know made something to eat and yeah this was this was conference on the cheap you know i think about the fact my, my university is blessed we have a alum who made a donation to provide a travel fund to help students go to the conference and I just think about, you know, being able to say to each of them, here, here's your, I don't know what it is, 600 bucks, 800 bucks. I mean, a decent, you know, cover an airfare and some hotel. And then we hope that all our students will go every year. And I'm thinking back to, yeah, Cherry Hill Campground. Yeah. I love walking through the conference hotel and seeing like, a, you know, like a, a hotel room will open up and you see like clearly eight students are sleeping in this room meant for <laughs> two people. Absolutely. <laughs> That's, that's the best. I remember those days. Those were fun. I mean, it's a lot of like, I know doing it on the cheap is tough, but it's a whole lot of fun going as a grad student too. Oh, a wise man once said, uh, there's two types of people that go to PSYOP, you know, those who wear suits and those who don't. And those people that wear suits are either high rollers or low rollers, which are you, <laughs> which are you? I was like, okay, I'm, I'm never going to wear a suit again. Oh my <laughs> Yeah, I'm still a guy who sort of half dresses up for PSYOP. The ties, the ties were abandoned years ago, but I'm, I'm still a, you know, a blue blazer and a shirt, you know, something like that. Yeah. I wonder if the pandemic is going to hasten like a more relaxed sort of style at PSYOP. I'm starting to see some jeans creeping in. I think it's really there. It's, it's, it's such a, 
such a big change. Well, the whole world's changed. Oh, yeah. There's still going to be some low rollers dressing to impress. Though. That's <laughs> yeah. all that's going to be there. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. need jobs after all, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's not going away. Yeah. Um, do you have like a favorite memory or like a funny experience that happened over the years? Uh, I mean, a psyop related yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Here's here's. A, well, well, here's one that comes to mind. This is this is really stupid. The story is sort of a weird and long setup, but it's a good story. Um, so I'll tell it. Um, when when I was a student at Ohio State, uh, we had a exam that we were all given at the end of the second year. That's sort of a how are you doing? Are you on track? Do you get to keep on going? And um, the faculty, I thought, were particularly mean and cruel. They, the one part of the exam uh, took the following format. You know, here's some names. Tell me the importance to the field of IO psychology of each of these people. And here's, you know, name, 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 name. And the faculty, just to mess with our heads, put in a non-existent person. <laughs> they came up with the name Mitchell Frobinger. And so I'm reading this list of, you know, here's all these famous psychologists. I'm carrying on. Yes, yes, yes. Vroom's expectancy theory, Gary Latham's goal setting. And I hit Mitchell Frobinger, you know, and I go, and of course I draw a blank. But anyway, so one, we thought that was mean. But then we dreamed up a, 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 a history for, for Mitchell Frobinger. And we said, you know, there's a phenomenon that I think all of us exist. You're trying to write something scholarly and you make some pronouncement and you say, you know, this needs a citation. I can't just say this. I have to point and say somebody said it. And so we decided whenever you're in that point, I say, I don't know what the citation would be, but it needs one. We said, you're going to cite Frobinger. So you put in, so make up and put, put Mitchell Frobinger in. Um, but anyway, so uh, that was fun. And I just to amuse myself for many, many years, I told my students that any paper they turned into me had to include a, a made-up Frobinger <laughs> citation. And in the reference section, they needed to, to actually, you know, make up a, you know, article title, this, that, and the other. Yeah, and I had one student who did it and for his dissertation and forgot to remove it. So it's, it's been <laughs> nice. all, all eternity. And and it's really cool. So you look to the to the reference section and here's Frobinger and you know Mitchell. I was wondering where the replication crisis started. Now we know where. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. All yeah. these fake citations. Yeah. So, so he had a, um, a, a faculty member got his schedule confused and didn't show up for a, um, for a, a dissertation proposal meeting. And so in, in honor of that fact, my, my student in the reference section, if you, you find Frobinger, MQ, um, with the article titled, Does Lee Know What Day It Is? Published in the Journal of Forgotten Appointments. Um, and I, I thought that was fun and clever, and it was a nice little dig at the faculty member. But anyway, that's enshrined, enshrined forever. But then my students pulled one on me. They went to PSYOP. Uh, they had some connection with whoever was staffing the booth that made name tags. And they recruited a, a grad student from, I don't know where, some other university. They had a name tag made reading Mitchell Frobinger and they had this guy put it on and they, Paul, look, look, we found the real Mitchell Frobinger. And so they, they pranked <laughs> me good with that one. It was a, 
Well, I mean, like, obviously, you, you kind of blew up the Schmidt and Hunter article recently in the past couple of years. But, like, how, yeah. how do you feel about these sort of practices that organizations will do? It's like uh, an impossible task, a, a Mitchell Frobringer sort of task where, like, they put candidates through a, a series of, uh, you know, tasks that are impossible to. Yeah, yeah. I'm not fond of that. I mean, I, I think. Well, we can we, we can learn an awful lot of good stuff about people doing it the right way. Yeah. And all these, you know, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I run a, I keep a collection of, you know, all these odd suggestions, you know, when the interview's finished, you know, um, escort the candidate out of the building, walk with them back to their car, and then and look inside and see how neat <laughs> their car is. And, and if there are Burger King wrappers and this, that, and the other all over the car, that tells you, you know, cut it out. I mean, it's, 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 it's oh, here's, here's my neat, neat trick. The, the secret to, to, you know, the secret to interviewing the secret to this. So no, I, I, yeah. I mean, I call it, yeah, there, there's, there's tons, you know, if you could be an animal, which one would it be? All that silliness. Yeah. Was any of that in the revision of Schmidt and Hunter? Of course, no. Our <laughs> <laughs> validity coefficient. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, of course, there's no validity stuff for any of that. So, so well, where did yeah. where did that start? I mean, you know, Schmidt and Hunter article since you know '98 has been you know one of the hallmarks of I/O. Sure. How, how did you get on this path of, uh, you know, replicating it or you know trying the new adjustments, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'd been honest answer obsessing about it for 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 years because there was stuff in it that just didn't seem right. Mm. I mean, I, I mean, I'm at a university, but I certainly more than keep my hand in, in the practice world. I, you know, have an active consulting practice, work with lots of people and, you know, all of my practitioner, you know, colleagues and friends complain and say, how come we don't get numbers like the numbers in, in, uh, in that review, you know, and, and, and I've had lots of people say, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I, you know, you know, Am I that feeble and infirm as an IO psychologist that I can't get the, the numbers that are there? And the thing to, that uh, that uh, is factual, and I've been aware of it for a long time, and it was always a little complaint of mine. The, I mean, this, the famous Schmidt and Hunter table. I mean, they simply compiled other information. They said we're going to pull the, you know, the meta analyses of everything under the sun and just put them in one place. So they're just gathering information that other people have have done and and just giving us a sort of a rank order order table but um the the correlations in that famous table are all quote corrected right and so now we get geeky here i mean you get you compute a correlation this is what you observe and then um commonly you make these corrections and conceptually a correction makes sense the question you want to answer is how well does this work in my applicant pool my applicant pool has a range of candidates from here to here but the group of people you hire, if the group of people you hire are from here to here, they, I mean, we've long known, and it's yeah. part of everybody's graduate training, that that's range restriction, and range restriction reduces validity, and so you have to correct for it. And so, and so, um, so they report these corrected, corrected validities, and the corrected validities are like double what the observed are, meaning that correction makes all the difference in the world, which means it better be right. And that just led me to take a close look at the, the correction process. And I went down the wrong path for a long time, thinking there must be something wrong with their correction formulas. And I took them apart and messed with them and 
no, there's nothing wrong with the correction formulas. <laughs> they are, they are, they are correct. And it turns out to be a conceptual problem. And it's so simple that, you know, once I explain it to people, everybody goes, how did we not, did we not see it? And the basic notion is we got two kinds of validity study designs, predictive and concurrent. The shortcut, give the, y'all want to try out a new test, give it to current employees, computer correlation, I can do it in a day. Um, it, it, it's quick and easy. And the catch is because you're giving it to current employees, it means the test wasn't used to screen them. So you haven't got a, 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 a real reduced pool. You give it to applicants, you use it to hire, you, it's easy to get a large range restriction. So the, the, the punchline is there's a big range restriction corrections are commonly needed for predictive studies and only in really rare circumstances might they be needed in concurrent studies. But the way meta-analysis works is um, uh, Schmidt and Hunter made up a shortcut and conceptually it was good, I mean, it's clever. They gave a clever, ideally you can take every individual study, correct that study for the amount of range restriction in that study and average them up and that's your meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. but, but oh my goodness, you only get these estimates of how much range restriction is there for a handful of studies. And so the standard procedure that the field's done is for all the studies that, that show us, show you that, you compute the average amount of range restriction and apply that average amount to all the studies in your whole database. Oh, wow. Makes the assumption that the, that the degree of range restriction in the studies that tell you about it uh, matches what you get overall. And the, the, the key brainstorm is this notion that, well, gee, concurrent studies don't have much range restriction. Predictive studies do. Where do you get estimates of range restriction from predictive studies only mm -hmm. because you need this the standard deviation in the applicant pool and in the group you hire in order to it's the ratio of those two things that's the correction factor. Can I can I ask a clarifying question on concurrent studies only? Is it just much smaller corrections for range restriction or no correction at all? Or are there is there an either or? It's not an either or. It's 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 the way I uh, if you work the math, you find it's it's very, very hard to get substantial range restriction in a, in a concurrent study um, because the, the, the thing you're studying wasn't actually used to screen people. So if there's restriction, it's fancy term is it's indirect, right? It's due to the thing you're trying out. If it happens to be correlated with the thing that you actually use to select people, then that produces some restriction. And so only, you know, um, the only way to get big range restriction in a concurrent study, and it is possible, a, 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 a good example that a, a practitioner colleague uh, provided to me would be the following. Imagine that they were screened using a cognitive ability test when they were hired, and the firm in question has decided to switch vendors, and they're going to you know, hire a different vendor, and you use that firm's cognitive ability test instead. And just to be sure that it works, they do a quick concurrent validity study on the new vendor's cognitive test. That would be an instance where it's a concurrent, but the basis, the thing you're trying out correlates really highly with the way they are, were originally selected. And so you can get range restriction in a concurrent study. So it's not a you can or you can't. It's possible, but it, only in rare circumstances would you get a lot of restriction. So, but, but the information needed for correction only can be found in the predictive study because you need 
the the ratio you need the information about the full applicant how how your test are you new predictor pairs in the applicant pool and you don't have that when you're just quickly trying it out on current employees so so one you find oh my goodness um, this applying applying the same correction to all studies is 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 doesn't make sense well can I make a can I make a practical comment about that um, and, and you mentioned earlier your colleagues, yourself, when you practiced via your consulting firm, but also your other colleagues that were out and practicing in the real world, weren't finding the coefficient sizes that Schmidt and Hunter would indicate. And perhaps one of the reasons is, at least in my experience, most studies in the real world are concurrent studies. Predictive studies are much, much more rare. That's the thing that that I was about to say when you stepped in. Um, what uh, what I what I discovered, and I didn't know this until a year ago. Um, so I, since I'm compiling all the the meta analyses of all the predictors, so it, so across all of those, I, I compiled and discovered exactly what you said. On average, in our field, eighty percent of studies are concurrent. Mm-hmm. It's quicker and easier, and it makes it. It's not. That's not a flaw it makes it's, yeah. it makes sense as a way of getting information in an efficient way but so this notion that says hey the correction factor that should only be applied to 20 percent of the studies that are predictive is applied to all studies including the 80 percent concurrent and that's how i reached this conclusion that's how we overestimated for all these years and you explain that to people and they go well yeah of course you know how did we not see it and i go yeah um I didn't see it. Nobody. I mean, we all just it. It's one of those things that once it's explained, people go, geez, yes, I, I get it. So um, people generally, I mean, there's a handful of holdouts. There's a handful of people who are, you know, nope, the old way, the old values, you know, we must defend them. But I mean, uh, I mean, I've given, you know, dozens and dozens of talks about this to audiences all over the world. And it, and the general reaction is, you know, one, we, we, ease, we grasp what you're arguing. It makes perfect sense. And here's this new world. Yeah. So I see you've put up this nice, um, I apologize. I'm blanking on the, the name of the fellow who created this. I thought it was very nice and I admire his work. So I, uh, again, apologies for not being able to, you Tell me, remind me who. Absolutely. So this is a repost from uh, AJ Thurston, who I right. believe is uh, uh, yeah. s- someone else. I think, think Ludic actually created it because I was going to cover this later on. Okay. But um, it's good that you pulled it up. Is it? I think it leads to a really just like basic question, which is why did some of the the coefficients go down and others go up? Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. um, so I mean, on average. You know, so the, the basic message is due to this thing we've just been talking about, on average, we've been overcorrecting for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so you would expect that uh, that that um, many would go down. But, uh, you know, the amount they go down just depends, you know, I mean, how restricted were the were the samples, this, that and the other. Um, but what I d- did, no, I, my team, I mean, I put together just I mean, it's it, it was a, a great working group. Um, you know, uh, well, I need to give them credit because they deserve it. I mean, my my frequent collaborator, the Belgian psychologist Philip Levens, two two former students of mine, Chris Berry at Indiana and Charlene Zhang at, at Amazon. Uh, so the the four of us spent spent the COVID period putting trying to compile all of this, going back and revisiting all of 
the predictors and trying to sort of redo Schmidt and Hunter. But so there's two things we did. One, you know, rethinking the correction factor, but second, since it's 25 years that have, that have, that have passed, in many cases, there's lots of new data. So yeah, if there, you know, here's a, an updated meta-analysis with twice as many studies. So the combination of uh, reworking the corrections and, uh, and, and looking at it all leads to this, um, you know, you'll see mostly up and, uh, I mean, excuse me, mostly down. There, you know, the, one, the one very vivid up that you'll see um, on the left, it starts as the very lowest interests. Um, and so our IO field has pretty much dismissed vocational interests as a predictor based on you know, this, oh, look at this. It, it, we, yeah, perhaps we shouldn't have dismissed it. Right, and, and it turns out that the problem there, this is another conceptual problem. I mean, the, the, the value in Schmidt and Hunter is not Schmidt and Hunter's fault. They just pulled what's in the literature, but um, people were not thinking clearly about interests. It doesn't make any sense to say, take an interest model, you know, reassec. Now let's pick a one. Let's take um, investigative interests. That's one of the six fields. Um, what what, what the, the data going into Schmidt and Hunter says, let's get people's score on the investigative interest scale and correlate it with job performance for all people in all jobs. And it comes out on average really low. Yeah, makes sense. But the question that you want to ask is, how well does your score on a, on, a, on the investigative interest scale predict performance in jobs that are that we'd categorize as investigative jobs? It's got to be this um, interest job match. You know, so by just saying that do you know, do do realistic interests correlate with performance across the board? No, they don't. They should only correlate with performance in realistic jobs. Well, I think you you could say the same thing about cognitive ability too. Like it's one of the you know best measured constructs we have in IO psychology and applies you know very broadly across yeah. the different uh, aspects of our lives. Uh, but <laughs> but when you measure more narrow sort of job interests or you know jobs in themselves not necessarily as powerful of a predictor as say like structured interviews or job knowledge tests. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, so, so this just nicely, I mean, in our article, we've got it. I mean, it's in the format that we have to have for putting it in the scientific journal. First, here's all the numbers in a table and we've got a graph that, uh, you know, maybe you'll show later that, that I think is, is clever and interesting, but this is a nice, a very, very nice way to show it too. So you very vividly see, I mean, so one on average things go down, but it's sort of, there's this restructuring of, of, of what rises to the top. You know, the old message was cognitive ability is really high um, and, you know, work samples work, work really well as well. So, you know, cognitive ability shows this big, big drop. Um, employment interviews, you know, emerge at the, the top of the heap. Well, Paul, can, yes. I, can I do a quick PSA here for, because well, we actually have a pretty big contingent of folks that are not IO psychologists that listen to this podcast. No. I want to tee up why this is important. Um, for IO psychologists, the Smitten Hunter 1998 article might be one of the most cited research articles we ever had. And it kind of told us the state of the science on what it takes to select candidates effectively. And one of the top areas that consistently came around was cognitive ability. Yeah. And, and so there's been this ongoing debate for a really long time about like the diversity validity trade-off and what's going on there. 
and and come to find out via your you know i would actually call it a series of research even though the biggest article is the one that's being shared on the screen right now is perhaps a lot of the things that we knew as like solid science have actually are, are decreased a lot and then things like interests actually matter more than we thought they might and mm -hmm. that's like a bombshell for our field like it's a huge huge deal that had been 30 years in the making and so getting somebody like you on here to talk about it kind of in plain English is super helpful for our field. But I, I do want to dig in, and I know Scott kind of talked about this briefly about cognitivity. I always saw, and I would love for you to correct me if this is the wrong way of thinking about it. I always saw cognitive ability as kind of a threshold barrier. It was like for, for most, you know, like, you know, thinking jobs, you probably need a certain level of cognitive ability, but over that level, you, other factors probably came into play for making a bigger effect on your ability to do the job. Um, yeah. Would you say that the corrections that you made validate something like that, invalidate it, or am I just off in left field? No, I mean, I understand what you say is a common belief, and I will strongly assert that that common belief is incorrect. Okay. Uh, and I've got good data on it, and that's published. At, uh, sure. Um, so... I mean, Malcolm Gladwell is probably the key, you know, the key figure behind this this threshold. I once you reach a certain <laughs> point, it doesn't make any difference to have more. And um, no, I, it was a, a, a student of mine did his dissertation on this. We compiled um, data from all over, from the world of work, from the world of education, higher ed, predicting educational performance, military, predicting military performance, and what we find is um, essentially the relationship is linear. More is better throughout the whole range. This idea of there's a point above which more doesn't help, that doesn't work. Now, the idea that more is better across the range is true, but that doesn't have anything to do with the also true fact that any one thing, cognitive ability, only, only gets you part of the way there. If I, you know, if I know your cognitivity score, I, that helps me a lot. I, you know, I, I start to get a sense of, you know, a likely range in which your performance might fall. But I got to know all kinds of other things. If I learn, if I learn that you're, yep, you're really smart, but and you're also conscientious as hell, I'm starting to get more confident that I'm going to get a lot of stuff out of you. If I learn you're really smart and really low on conscientiousness and on attention to detail and on persistence. Uh, you know, oh my goodness, I start to think different. So yeah, so the fact that more is always better is true and that in any circumstance, there's multiple determinants of performance. I can't imagine any system where, uh, where I would advocate a selection system where we measure one and only one thing. And I think you know, that's what our, where, where our field is. This, this, the Schmidt-Hunter table and my replication of it talks about these things one at a time. But, you know, in, in follow-up stuff that we've been doing since then, we are saying, now, what happens when we, um, you know, combine them, when we put two or three or four different, you know, measures together in, in building a selection system? What do we achieve both in terms of uh, performance and, as you mentioned, diversity? So um, jumping the gun, you know, um, so, so this paper just talks about one at a time, how does that work? Um, and... There's two follow-up papers that I think are, how do I say it, as incendiary or, you know, uh -oh. game, uh -oh. 
game. Uh, yeah, I just saw it. You had, here we go, new, new insights into the diversity, validity diversity dilemma. So here's a paper. It's still floating around in the, in the review process. I was desperately hoping that it would be, you know, that I could say to you today, yeah, it's, it's in. But yeah, last week the editor says, I still want to see some more tweaks. So we'll tweak it a little <laughs> more, but we'll get there. But it's on its way. I'm confident it'll get there. So um, in our field, um, uh, oh dear. I think something's missing here. Oh well, but uh, there, there's there's a, a well-known piece in our in our in our literature, and, and it's um, Bob Cohen Roth put it together, which is they they oh here there we go there's the part I'm missing. So they had six predictors, and so these are six widely used things in our field, and they picked those only because you need a lot of information, you need validity for each one, and you need the intercorrelations among all of them. And if you know that, you can do some fancy fancy math and say what level of validity would you get and what level of let's call it adverse impact would you get if you use different combinations what if i used cognitability and conscientiousness together what if i added a third add add situational judgment to those so the Pareto optimal sort of selection measures yeah right? we get it we get into that and I think uh, there, so that's sort of the setup. We updated all those values based on the new way of thinking that I've just been talking about. And here's a punchline that I think is to me truly spectacular. With the old values, if you built a composite that didn't have cognitive ability in it, you lost 10 to 20 validity points. With the new updated values, composites with and without cognitive ability on average are equal. This whole notion of we said, but, I mean, the issue was, you know, Schmidt and Hunter said, gee, cognitivity should be the centerpiece of all selection systems because of its special status. And at the same time, cognitivity at the time we believed was the best predictor we've got. And at the same time, it has the more adverse impact than anything else we've been able to design. So we've got one thing we want and one thing we don't want. And that's why we always talked about this validity diversity dilemma. People, oh my goodness, I need to use this because I, I want good performance, but I don't like the, the, the impact consequence. And we've you know, spent decades trying out different ideas for how can we work, work around that problem? What if I give less weight to cognitive ability than the data say it deserves in order to help with diversity? And we formalized that with this Pareto optimality stuff. Which I don't think we're going to talk about today. That's very, very geeky. But the message really is, <laughs> with these new, with these new values, uh, what we saw as a, oh, how do we do it? How do we get good validity without giving high weight to this high impact uh, predictor of ability? No, you can, you can get, you can get good prediction um, without using. Uh, predictors that will that will bring in a lot of adverse impact. So this one, like I say, this is still in the review process. I've been on, I've been on the circuit, taught, you know, preaching yeah. this. Every audience I can get was just at psyops. We just had this the LEC that leading edge consortium yep. was about us. Yeah, we talked to Charles Handler while he was there. Okay, okay, um, but anyway, so I talked about this this work here and just look at this. It's this thing we thought was an unsolvable dilemma for decades is just sort of going to go away. So I think that's nice. You, you can get as geeky as you want, really. I mean, like, we're here for it. Can I tell a random story really quick? Sure. <laughs> it's somewhat related. You mentioned the Bobco Roth uh, classic matrix. And 
uh, when I left graduate school and I moved to Raleigh, my cousin uh, introduced me to a few people he knew in Raleigh. And I got together with them. And one of their last names was, was Bobco. And I was like, oh, I used to cite <laughs> this Bobco and Roth matrix. And, and it was like, oh, that's that's my dad. That's his, right. I was going to say, that was, yeah. And, and then yeah. Uh, then there was another famer that was Bobco and Bobco. He's like, oh, I've actually published in exactly. your field. Even, this guy's like a physicist or something. Like he's not even a social scientist. <laughs> yeah. And he's published in one of our, like, our top journals. I was like, oh, my God. I've known who you were for right. years. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was so, very yeah. strange. You yeah. meant Frobinger, right? Frobinger, Frobinger. But anyway, so you know, so 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 as I said, the second paper we've just been talking about this notion of hey, this this validity diversity trade off isn't as imposing as we as we thought it was, and then the third and this one is that one of the ones you sent me as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The third talks about. You know, I, I mean, as you as you rightly note, cognitivity. I mean, we've had this speech about, hey, it's the, here we go. Show that that. Look at this. Um, so, I list all the authors here. This is from the the SIAP LEC slide deck. Um, since it's a bunch of my grad students, and I need to let them get their names, you know, up here. So none of this sack at they all. Professor jobs. They all they all get they all, But anyway, um, as we're updating Schmidt and Hunter, I say, you know what? Everything the field believes we know about cognitivity comes from the data is more than 50 years old. I, I, I don't mean on average. I mean, the single most recent study in our cognitivity database is 50 years old. The average age is 75 years. We are relying on really, really old mm -hmm. data. And I said, that can't be right. And so I said, well, we really should. I mean, even though we say it's an answered question and, and we already know the so we said, let's just take a look, as you see here, 21st century data. So I'd say, we all went to work and hunted up and managed to find 153 new validity samples, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, and it's the published literature. Um, uh, and I, we tried sending it to a journal. The journal said, this is interesting, but you know, I wonder if you'd get something different do, do consultants get different answers? Do they are they more skilled at getting, you know, as, you know, a lot of a lot of the the academic stuff might be students doing dissertations. Maybe they're novices. So okay, so we we went back out and and I you know reached out to everybody you know everybody in SIOP who said they had an interest in personnel selection in the SIOP directory. So it, you know um, so we got we got all these. We got 153 studies, and the next page probably is a punchline. I think I sent you two slides. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so if you do, yeah, on the on the on the left side, you see observed Schmidt Hunter said the observed validity is twenty five. Um, the the my update. Yep, I agree. It's twenty five. And then to the right of that is what happens with the twenty first century data. No, the observed is down even lower than that. It's sixteen. Um, which will gulp. And so then on the right side, you say, what happens if you do these range restriction corrections? And first you see the Schmidt-Hunter, which is where they wrongly applied the correction to the 80% concurrent studies that got 51. Next to that is, I say, if you used it, that the 50-year-old data, but mm -hmm. uh, don't do the miscorrection, you get 31. And then on the gray and to the right of that says, 21st century data, it's even less than that. So we're now in the low 20s. 
Why, why would that be? I mean, that doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, there's two reasons. It doesn't make sense. Um, uh, and I went into this saying, I didn't know what we'd find. I mean, some people say, hey, in jobs are getting more cognitive, cognitively complex, the new information world. Um, and if that's true, cognitivity becomes more important and we should see higher validity. Um, and now it's, if you take a serious look, uh, and move out of psychology into and, and look at economists who are looking at changes in the world of work. I mean, for every job that's being made more complex, um, another job is being made less complex, right? You're taking away all the in the, in the old days, well, just, yeah. I mean, the world's simplest. You know, the, the cashier who used to have to make change, and I have to know how to count out how do I give somebody eighty-three cents. Now you press a button, then the eighty-three cents come down a tube. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it, there's we've done a lot of. To, you know, so it's a mix of up, down, and the same. So there's there doesn't seem to be a per se a net change in the cognitive demands of jobs. But what's more telling uh, is the big change in the world of work, and we all know, as we all say it, it's the top of all of our lists, is work used to be done largely individualized. It's now um, it's now teamwork. Yeah. So those yeah. skills and teamwork are important. So if I ask how you know how are you doing, tell me about your job performance. What the way we define job performance today is different than we did yeah. 50 years ago. It's so basically the performance. I say the pie has gotten larger. We've added this interpersonal and teamwork piece. And so cognitive ability, which still works to me the same way it used to, it'll predict your performance on the technical parts of the job just as well today as it did 50 years ago. Nothing's gone wrong with our tests, but because we've added all this other stuff, it's predicting a smaller piece of this bigger pie. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, can I, can so I repeat it back to you in sure. a way that, that sure. just makes sense to me? And you tell me if this is incorrect. It, it seems like over the last 50 years, we, we and I'm, I say like biopsychology and the methods that we use are actually having a much more difficult, not much more, but a more difficult time predicting at the levels we used to be able to predict but it's not because our methods necessarily got worse. It's that the criterion measures of what it means to be good at your work have have more variance within them. And probably uh, the criterion problem is as great as it ever was. Right. And, and that could be the reason for why. Is that a fair assessment? That's very, that's very fair. That's good. So it's just, yeah, there's more stuff that goes into job performance. There's more things that can make you a good performer, more things that can derail you. You know, are, are we still talking about like averaging over low and high skill jobs though? Yeah. I mean, like uh, yeah, McDonald's yeah. cashier is far different than a exactly. VP at yeah. you know some tech. And, and I have to say, in this in this work that we've just, I mean, it's about it'll show up in JAP online next week or something like that. This, Probably by the time this episode is out, it may okay. be live. In the past, people have found um, higher validity for more comp complex jobs and lower validity for less. So that's a standard finding. And I have to scratch my head and say, we don't get that in these 21st century data. I get for, you know, the, the same level of validity for cognitively complex and less complex. So I don't know what to make, what to make of that. And there's a second, there's a second reason. There's a second reason why uh, validity is lower. You know, one performance is broader with interpersonal and teamwork. And the second, and, and I find this one really interesting. Um, applicant pools are narrowing. What does that mean? It means that um, the range of ability in the people who apply to a given job is narrower now than it used to be. 
people are getting better at self-selecting into so jobs. It's like a sociological phenomenon. That's Absolutely. Going on. Yeah. Because um, if you think, of, I mean, if, if validity, you know, it, it, this, it, it's sort of range restriction, not imposed by the organization, but imposed by people have information. I mean, think back 50 years ago, you know, you're just, I want a job. How do I find out about that job? Well, there's no easy way to find out, you know, I, unless I talk to my buddy about the job he's got. And now, you know, you can go online and get all kinds of information. It's, yeah, this makes sense. I, my, I should apply for this one. No, this one doesn't make sense for me. I mean, we do all this. I mean, let's be simple. Let's look at our own profession. What does PSYOP do? PSYOP conveniently publishes a nice little table about every graduate program saying yeah. this is the average <laughs> level of grade and GRE. You know, So there's information to people for them to say, oh my goodness, uh, it looks like I, I'm a I'm in the range for these ten schools, and it looks like maybe some of these are out of reach. Any the usual language, I may take a shot at a couple, you know, stretch schools. Uh, but yeah, so we have information, and it lets people self-select into what you know things that they believe they've got a chance at succeeding at, or believe you know that uh, oh, this is the kind of job that makes sense for me. So a narrowing of skill would re result in a lowering of validity. Nothing wrong with the test, no change. It's just the question we're asking is with for, for candidates within this range, how well does it differentiate? The broader the range, the, the better it'll differentiate. The more self-selection, the less it'll differentiate. Interesting. You know, I'd, I'd heard research out there about, you know, like the sorting in society that's going along socioeconomic status lines, like, you know, mm -hmm. people of high socioeconomic status are more likely to marry people of high socioeconomic status, and that's creating stratifications more and more in society. It's interesting that there's that actually is impacting our selection techniques over in the IO psychology realm. That's that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's new. I wasn't aware of this stuff, and it's uh, I'll give a shout out to the Minnesota grad, a fellow by the name of Piers Steele <laughs> on the faculty at University of Calgary, who's who's been uh, producing these interesting findings on, on the narrowing of, uh, of ability. Yeah, so it's interesting. Cool. Uh, Y'all want to move on to the nerdery? Do a couple of articles real quick? Sure. I thought you had a cool new segment for us, Scott. I was excited. You want, you, want to do, you want to do the cool new segment? I would rather do the cool new segment than the nerdery, to be honest with you. Okay, okay. The Confusion Matrix. Well, I don't know what your cool new segment is, so you're taking me by surprise here, but that's okay. So, Paul, you're going to be the guinea pig here. Like uh -oh. this may this may fail wildly, but hey, it may don't it embarrass may me. I'm embarrassed myself. That's <laughs> <laughs> so. I found a website that had uh, really just crazy research that's been published, and I was like, okay, we can make a game out of this. So I have one real study and two fake studies. Oh, fun. And both of your uh, tasks are to identify the real study in this list, okay? I like it. Y'all ready for this? Is this the first time you've done this? Yeah, never heard of this. This is great. <laughs> okay, study one comes from the University of Idaho in the Journal of Experimental Physics. It's called Spuds in Space, an analysis of the aerodynamic properties of potatoes. Spuds in Space. Study two is from the University of Amsterdam Animal Behavior Journal. Feline frequencies, cats responses to different musical genres. Okay. So cats responses to different musical genres. 
In study three, Journal of Ergonomics from the University of Denmark, impact of wet underwear on thermal regulatory responses and thermal comfort in the cold. So the impact of uh, wet underwear on thermal regulatory responses. I have no idea. So once again, potatoes, cats, right, or underwear. Absurd, which are so absurd that means they're not real. <laughs> You know, you, you uh, got a guess, Paul. You got yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's see. So, so one is real. Well, wet what? underwear has got to be the real one. Okay. What? Why do you think that? It's just the oddest. That's the oddest. I'm just cool. using the, the the least plausible must be the real answer, right? Isn't that how you're supposed <laughs> to guess the multiple choice quizzes? You know. What, would it change your opinion if I said that cats prefer classical music over rock? Music? Oh my goodness. Well, that's disappointing. I have two cats and they are forced to listen to rock all the time. So. <laughs> what kind of rock Cold. are we talking about? Yeah, eh, you know, yeah. I don't know. It doesn't go into that. It doesn't go into you. Yeah. What, what do you think? I'm in, I'm in Paul's cats. What kind of rock are they having to listen oh, to? Oh, <laughs> oh, God. No, I'm, yeah, I'm an, I'm an indie rock guy. Ooh, I, yeah. I started, I started life as a musician. I, you know, played really? in bands through college and, um, yeah, it's way before your time, but, uh, I had in the era I was PSYOP president in 1993 or something like that. And in that era, there was this notion, you gave your presidential address, but there was supposed to be a five minute piece of it where you did something talking about your personal life to, you know, I don't know. Appease you know, the crowd. Exactly. Exactly. And so I decided that, well, hell I need to write and perform a song for the occasion so oh my so, god uh, i'm the only guy to to sing his his presidential address i still remember so, so, um, <laughs> this was fun. There was a fellow uh, bill macy became a psyop president but bill was the psyop chair at the time and the day i called up i said bill i need something for my presidential address and he says what is it? i said i need a grand piano and a microphone and he said oh okay <laughs> and i later said you didn't bat an eye and he said well i didn't want to pry so anyway yeah so yeah so i had so it I, sounds like it was like elton john's candle in the wind or something like very, like that. Very, very like that very like that it's one of those where i'm sitting here saying you know there's only two possibilities this is going to be the most embarrassed this is going to fall so flat and it's going to be the stupidest thing i've ever done or you know and i mean it was i mean this was the big standing ovation it was it was, it was fun. of course it was, it was a big hit um so a lot of fun I, I will get to the actual reveal in a moment, but I will say my very first PSYOP, my very first session that I went to was an Ignite session. The very first presenter wrapped her Ignite speech, and it's been downhill since then, right? Never seen that ever again. <laughs> yeah, Peaked early. Oh, my goodness. Okay, Cole, what do you think? I, I was going to go with number two just because I thought it was weird. I don't know. I, I don't have any reason why I chose it. Okay, let's see. Here, I will present the actual one. All right, hold on. Let me put it on the screen. Oh, there you go. Hey. It is the underwear. Yes. <laughs> so, oh uh, yeah, this research, uh, they took eight male subjects wearing wet and dry underwear in controlled cold conditions. And apart from the obvious, significant cooling effects of wet underwear on thermal regulatory responses and thermal comfort, they all discovered that the thickness of the underwear exerted a greater effect on these factors than the material used. So now you know. Now I know. I, mean, you... I feel like YouTube has advertised this finding to me before now that you say it. 
Because you get all these commercials <laughs> about breathable underwear, you know? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, you live in Minnesota. This could come in, like, really handy, right? This is handy. Absolutely. Pretty cold. Yeah, I mean, we've, we had, we've had snow already. You know, we had snow for Halloween. This Ooh. is terrible. I, we, had a huge, we had a huge hailstorm, and every house in my neighborhood needs a new roof. So insurance companies are taking a beating. And the last three days I've had, I'm feeling so badly. For, I've, had, I've had this crew of guys up on my roof pounding away at 25 degree temperatures. I'm going, oh, <laughs> this is, you know, when you rank order jobs, uh, roofing in the cold is, is, uh, is not. Do you like a, go outside and be like, like, hey, what's, what's your interest in this? Like, did, did you take a cognitive ability test <laughs> before you got up on that roof? I don't think we screen. I think this, are you willing to do this? <laughs> yeah. You That's the threshold. I have, I'm not a guy who likes walking up. A, you know, I don't have a good balance on a, on a, a climbing a roof. I'm just, yeah. no, somebody else can do that. Yeah. What's, what's a uh, good uh, indie band? Like, what would you recommend out there? Oh, well, they're long gone, but okay. Uh, for, for the last two decades, Guided by Voices are at the top of my list. Number one, I think it's one of the best band names I've ever heard, just oh, yeah. in terms of cool names, Guided by Voices. Um, yeah, I, I like them. Uh, okay. Well, do you want to do an abbreviated nerdery, Scott? Yeah, let's do uh, a quick one. The Nerdery. Do you want the, the open science one first? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll set this up. Uh, okay. So this is a commentary uh, by Paul Spector. You, you interact with Paul Spector? Yeah, yeah. I go to him out. Um, he gets lots of my mail. I get lots of his. <laughs> of course. We're sort of people of the same vintage and people who just sort of get confused. Yeah, yeah a pretty well-known guy named Paul with a last name that starts with S. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> he, has, he has a really good uh, um, open source uh, assessment thing on his webpage. So you can go find a variety of different like, measures out there. But his right. uh, commentary is titled, Is Open Science Rewarding A While Hoping for B? So they say that open science focuses on the individual and not the overall system, i.e. you got to pre-register your experiments and this sort of thing. Uh, but people are still pressured to publish in like A-list journals and get significant findings, not only significant findings, but make a novel contribution to the field. And because of this, like, of course, people are going to try to game the systems. And in a nutshell, he essentially says that uh, to really get these results, you need to aim at the universities and the journal practices to uh, actually rid the field of these sort of like fraudulent or, you know, risky sort of behaviors. Um, kind of an interesting perspective, like overall open science sounds like a good deal, but he's I think he's right. You're not getting at the root cause of what's going on here. Yeah, this was in in the Psyop Journal, right? So this was this was he was responding to the Rick Guzzo Ben Schneider piece. So um, so that 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 whole set of exchanges is very interesting. I, it's 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 all it's all very good and thoughtful work. I mean, the open science stuff I think is 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 interesting and and a really good thing. Um, it's really changing what I do, and I'm you know I'm I'm sort of slow to adopt. I won't call myself a leader in it, but this notion of, you know, I'm finally getting around to, oh my goodness, this idea of pre-registering. Um, so these days with my students, okay, we're going to, we, 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 we announce in advance every variable we're going to use, every analysis we're going to do. And that sort of keeps you on the straight and narrow. 
And I think for people who are well-intended, it's a good thing. It takes away the temptation, oh, I didn't get what I wanted. I'll pretend that that wasn't the dependent variable I wanted and, and I'll yeah. switch my focus to something else. You can, yeah, I mean, this doesn't keep you from doing it, but at least you have to say, I acknowledge that this is, I didn't get what I intended. This is exploratory in a new direction. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine with exploratory stuff. And I, my complaint is that, you know, it's also, you know, well, well, the earlier paper, the Guzzo and Schneider talks about this, this pressure that everything's got to be, you know, theory driven rather than, oh my goodness, what on earth is wrong with saying I have a big, interesting data set from a really interesting setting. And as I explore it, here's some phenomena that seem really interesting. Let's talk about them and hopefully others pick up on that. So um, I'm fed up with this theory must come first model. But so, yeah, so the, the, the open science stuff is, is great. It makes you be thoughtful about what you want to do, what matters, you know, um, help mm -hmm. you avoid just after the fact, finding something going wrong. Now, of course, what it, um, and so that's good, but it, it, the question is, is this going to be a mechanism that's going to eliminate outright fraud? And you know, I mean, it's real easy to just say, okay, if, if I truly am, I mean, you've got these handful of well-known cases of people whose entire career is, you know, every study is made up data and all that kind of stuff. So if, if you're, if you're, you know, really bent on engaging in fraud, you know, this just yeah. it's just one more hurdle you got to jump over you 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 collect your data you look at it you know all the answers and then you submit and you pretend i announce that i'm pre-registering something that i'm now about to collect but you've already collected it i mean so i think there's you know um you you could somebody who's 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 hell-bent on it can beat it so this isn't gonna um you could fabricate a data set and then pre-register yeah. it essentially you know especially right. if you're using chat gbt um, yeah, <laughs> everything, you know, you know, we've got, I mean, you may have seen this, you know, I get an ad from somebody who says, Hey, you know, um, you know, here, we've got this nice service. I, you know, you, you're under pressure to produce some research since you're an academic setting, but, um, you know, we'll do it for you, you know, just yeah, give really. us one liner and we'll write you a, uh, an, an intro section and a lit review for this much money. Give us a data set and boom, we'll push the button and we'll give you a result section. Boom, we'll give you a discussion section. Your your study's done in a day, you know. Um, and I I don't know how we're going to detect. How would we know if this is real or if this this isn't? How would I know that somebody's data set? I think it goes back to something you were saying, Paul, and and I wanted to reinforce the point about starting with theory and then looking for data. I mean, I think that there's a lot of goodness in that, but a lot of the theories that I've come up with myself in my career just came from situations where I had a lot of data at my disposal. I was able to search through it using kind of inductive reasoning methods and coming up with, oh my goodness, this isn't what I would have suspected. And then leading that led to me thinking of like new theories of how to approach the world or what the, some of these emergent properties and I think that is actually going to be one of the ways that you check for faulty research in the future is, are you finding things that are consistent with, in the data with other things that you would have found otherwise, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. comparing it against what you know, because you have the real data, getting new, completely new sets of data. And you could be able to look at it and just be like, this looks funny. This is, this can't be right. Right. And, and I think that's going to have to be one of the practical ways of checking for the work in the future.
Or it's just the need for replication, right? We we don't do enough of that. But you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I've I learned so much from I just stumble into something, not I start with a theory. That one thing that I'm sort of known for is a program of work on distinguishing between typical and maximum performance. I don't know if that. Yeah, we 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 cited that before on the pod. Okay, but I mean, so where does that come from? It was a pure consulting project. I'm working with in the supermarket industry with the national trade organization, the Food Marketing Institute, who said, "Hey, we want a, a selection battery to predict who's going to be in speed and accuracy in and doing checkout work." And I'm working with you know a couple other people, you know Shelley Zedek at Berkeley and uh, his former student Larry Fogley. So we're doing all this stuff, and the criterion was. Um, <clears throat> Uh, well, we ended up saying, oh, my goodness, this was in the era where some stores were, you know, scanners were new. Lots of supermarkets were still an old cash register. You're punching in each one. So some are punching in you know, into old cash registers. Some have, have scanners. And we were trying to figure out, you know, well, what's a, a, a way of, you know, getting a measure that can be be used commonly? And And we realized, oh, with the scanner, you can get what now we call you know, long-term typical performance. People don't even know, but it's recording, you know, the, uh, yeah. with which you scan every item you scan day in, day out for months. And for places that didn't have that to get a speed measure, we put, we, you know, we created six baskets full of groceries where we knew what was in them and how much that should add up to. And we sat there with a stopwatch and timed them and, you know, how fast can you do it and get it right? And so the sitting there, how well you do for a limited period of time, you're being paid overtime to stay late and do this little research task. And, and so there was, we didn't start with the theory, but it emerged. Oh my goodness, look, these things that are just, we're getting in the study are one that we could think of and we made up the name, we called it maximum performance. And the other one, we made up the name and called it typical performance. And it's been cited a billion times and there's a whole literature on this. And it just emerged out of, oh, look, we've, and oh, so, so for comparison, let's, when we, we said, let's give this, let's give our six shopping carts also to all the people who have the scanners so we can see how it compares and boom we've got yeah. you know, what, what turned into that, a work for that we're work. forever grateful paul because uh i think we've cited that a few times <laughs> okay scott i know you were trying to make a segue with the replication thing do you want to go that direction i really wasn't because i mean, i love this idea that uh we test a lot, even like forget like supermarket workers, like you put people through employment tests, this sort of thing, and you're really measuring their peak performance or like the, their ceiling. Right. And then you like you hire them and get them on the job and perhaps they have, you know, yeah, no motivation, whatever. It's fun. I mean, I talk about this a lot. And, you know, when you when you explain this and then you say now you, you have a choice, you can design a selection system to predict typical performance, or you can design one to predict maximum performance. Which one do you want? Yeah. People sitting there thinking a while, and it really depends. I mean, there yeah, are there's, there's different situations, but it would matter. Yeah, I, we, we make no attempt to influence what people do. So let's just work. Let's just hire people who we think their typical performance would be pretty good. And others, you know, the U.S. military is a great example. They formally say, we're trying to select for maximum performance because we believe we can put into place systems, motivation, supervision, you know, culture that will 
have people performing close to that max most of the time. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but they believe it. But it's a very conscious thing that, no, we're designing our selection systems to predict maximum, where most people are designing it to predict typical. Well, they may want to try to replicate that. Uh, story two, here we go. Uh, the Journal of Consumer Research, Consumer Behavior's top research journal, now stands at 3.4% replication rate. Uh, so 29 replications have been attempted, and only one has succeeded. So... That's pretty bad. That ain't good. Way worse than what Creday mentioned. <laughs> Way <Yeah>. worse. <laughs> it's so bad. Well, I mean, a couple different things here. Like, we don't know what these studies are, and it is consumer behavior, not, say, IO sort of work psych sort of stuff. So th there may be some natural variability in here, uh, but not, not what you want to build theory or <laughs> anything, really. No, not at all. Now, the good news to me is... There's, there's stuff like this um, where people are looking at the, quote, management literature and viewing I.O. as a subset and sort of trying to get you know, replication rates there and reporting things that look a lot better. If you, do complete ver if you combine com percent complete replication and percent partial, partial because you often you're testing many hypotheses right um, i've seen one recently that, that that puts our replication rate around 75 percent which is wildly different from 3.4 um and you start to ask well what do we do better you know why why, why are we more successful than others and the, to me the simplest thing is uh, io discovered long before most other fields that you know you're doomed to failure your failure if you do quote small sample research, this notion that uh, I was taught it in grad school that uh, yeah. if thirty people is 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 perfectly fine for 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 a study, and the I/O people caught on and here give Schmidt and Hunter a lot of credit. They're the people who published some stuff on early on on how the role of sample. So we it's now second nature to us. We worry about sampling error, and. Um, I've, somebody has tallied this, um, you know, the average sample size for a published article in Journal of Applied Psychology by decade from when it was founded in 1900 something till now. And, and it, and it, and it's, it's up dramatically. I mean, it used to be, yeah, we're running the ends of 30, 40, 50, and now the average is in the several hundreds. Uh, we just sort of realized you're going to fool yourself easily with small samples. And we, are better at avoiding that than 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 other fields, um, so that that's one big piece. You, you perform meta analyses, obviously. Like, what what does that mean? Like a 75, 80 percent replication rate mean for including those studies into meta analyses yeah, and yeah. you know deriving yeah. results, etc. Meta analysis is how you solve this, this whole problem. You can only do meta analysis if you've got a research question. Mm -hmm. relationship between something and something else that enough people study that you've got a whole bunch of them, right? I mean, the, the reason for all this replication price crisis is there's so many one-off things. <laughs> Somebody that says, hey, I've got a study on something nobody's ever done before, and here it is. Um, so how do you solve that problem? Well, if, if, if 40 or 50 people study it and each produce a, a value, and we toss them all into the meta-analysis, and meta-analysis has got all the bells and whistles in it that says how much variability would you expect just due to fluctuations in sample size. So we just pull out that, you know, 
due to sampling errors or term yeah. you know, due to so so a meta-analytic world is 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 our, our, our best bet at solving this it's almost like you might say until something's got enough literature that we got a meta-analysis call it preliminary i just want to get your perspective on something i don't know if this is necessarily contrary to what you're saying but one of the things that i think is an untapped um, aspect of our field it's like there'll be fun i mean let's just focus on like assessments for a second um, there'll be companies out there that sometimes have millions, if not hundreds of millions of samples <laughs> of using their assessments for, for different things. And those sample sizes are so much more tremendous than a meta-analysis. Um, are we missing something by not including that type of work in what we do? Because, I mean, we've had some scientists come on the podcast before and they talk about like how, you know, people that are like, out in the real world aren't doing the best science. I'm like, look at their sample sizes alone. You know, that's something like the magnitude of that is something to behold. And, and, and I mean, are we missing something there? Yeah, I mean, this is something the IO field has wrung its hand and agonized. I mean, there's all these settings where wonderful, really large scale data is collected. And the question is, um, it's not, it's not exploited to the you know, as well as it could be for the benefit of the field. One, what if somebody says it's proprietary, nobody else can see it? Well, of course, that doesn't go into the meta-analysis under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, second, you know, you know, I'm out there doing all this work, but I don't have the time to write it up in a way and describe it and put it in a you know either a formal journal or even write it up as a blog post. I mean, so there's 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 so much good info out there that that uh, you know there's all this. Talk. How do we find mechanisms to you know? Can we pair up people out there with access to data but no time to do stuff with it with yeah with with other folks who say, yeah. I mean, I'm in a job where I'm well, I got plenty of research projects. I'm not shopping for them myself right now. But I mean, but conceptually, where where somebody says, yeah, you know. Sure, I'll you know um, let's 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 try to do something together and uh, for the benefit of you know what we know collectively as a field. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lots of you know you know the single study that's bigger than you know, you know my 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 21st century cognitive meta analysis is 153 studies totaling 40,000 people. That's good, but yeah, but you know so here's somebody running a single large a selection system where they're screening a hundred thousand people a year and you go, well, you know, uh, wow. If, <laughs> if, yeah, I remember, I remember seeing a present, a conference presentation from a, I won't say the company, but I mean, it's a very, very large organization. And they said that using their assessment strategy, and th- again, this wasn't a vendor selling something. This was just an internal practitioner. They said they could select down to the day using the assessment results how soon someone could would quit the organization down to the day because they had such large sample size over a large long enough period of time. I'm like, I don't see any of our science being at that level of sophistication. So I, I just I feel like that there is such a need for these type of partnerships to occur, yeah. and yeah. it's it's got to require incentives for both sides to want to align, and I just right. don't see those incentives right. aligned, and so. I try to talk about this stuff to say maybe we can start aligning these incentives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice, yeah, I, I'm on board with all that. Well, mic drop, mic drop, nice. And we're done. We're done. Um, 
Well, do you mind if I give a quick plug for something really quick? Uh, just because I think it's related to what we've been talking about today. Uh, what, and I know I think he's a friend of yours, Paul. But um, I mentioned it a few weeks ago with Jackson Roach uh, that uh, Fred Oswald has a new Substack that's come out, and he's written a series on the Schmidt and Hunter article. This is part one, but his, his Substack's called Working Things Out. So I wanted to yeah. give him a plug here because he goes into very sophisticated detail on a lot of the math behind this that I think if somebody is wanting to dig further into our discussion today and you want to know more about the math, uh, I would say check this out. But I think Fred's doing amazing work. But it's been amazing having you on today, Paul. Uh, I've been looking forward to this ever since I saw your research come out and then the, the IOP commentary that came out afterwards and then your presentation to the SIAP LEC. So I, I'm just glad that we got to have this discussion today. Uh, Scott, any parting words for Paul before we let you go? You're the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> how, how 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 messy is your car? I think we need to know this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> clean as can be for whatever it's worth. Oh, I'm, a, I'm a clean car guy. Yeah. And tip to everybody <laughs> out there. One. So yeah. who knows? Who knows? And I will also endorse. You know, Fred Oswald is a Minnesota grad. He we worked with me when he was a grad student. He's does amazing work. He and I have been arguing about the stuff in that blog. Uh, so we've been going back and forth on on about his his math. But it's it's fun to see Fred doing that. He's oh well, we'll have a really debate. Let's do it. And doing very 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 interesting things. So sorry, I didn't realize. Well, I mean, with how clean your car is, uh, Paul, you definitely are going to be exhibiting some maximal performance. I will so do. we appreciate you joining <laughs> us today. But um, you've been uh, listening to Direction and Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and today's guest, Paul Sackett. Thank you, Paul. That's great. Thank you. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.